Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. On this episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, the 1763 Massacre of the Conestogas. But but he had to go away knowing that everybody was being killed behind him, in the cold, in the dark, and then to think he was safe, being protected by not only the older people in his group, the Conestogas, who he's with, but by the county of Lancaster and Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So glad you are here with me. It is great to have as my guest today, Jack Brubaker. He is a columnist and former investigative reporter for LNP, Lancaster Newspapers, and the author of six historical books and working on a seventh. The one he's here to talk about today is called Massacre of the Conestogas, On the Trail of the Paxton Boys in Lancaster County. I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So is this a subject matter that you have been familiar with uh, for a while? Oh, I'd say about 40 years I've been very familiar with it. I've been doing my column now for over 40 years, and I, I got interested in the Conestoga Massacre was about the time I started writing the column, and I have written about it many times and at one point laid all those columns side by side and said, wait a minute, there's a problem here. I kept changing the story according to what I had read, and I said, I should go back to the beginning and find out what's really true, and that's what drove me to write this, this book. So tell us a little bit about Lancaster and the importance of these events that you write about to the city you live in. Right. Well, first of all, let, let, me, let me correct you on the pronunciation of Lancaster. Most Lancasters in the United States are pronounced Lancaster, but we're pronounced Lancaster. Just so you know. Oh, my apologies. Duly noted. Anyway, 
Lancaster is uh, home of the Amish. We have millions of tourists who come here every year who don't know or care much about the Conestogas. Not so much this year with COVID going on, but we're known as a tourist attraction. We have a fair amount of industry here, a lot of manufacturing. It's a conservative, old, old county. This is the, uh, was once the largest inland county in America. It has connections with Philadelphia, which I'll mention later. The Conestoga Massacre came fairly early in the county's history. Uh, the county was founded in 1717, and the, uh, the massacre, massacre happened uh, roughly 45 years later. Well, let's start by talking about the Susquehannock people. They were called the Conestoga by English settlers. Can you talk a bit about their history in the area? Of, of the, the Susquehannocks and the Conestogas? Oh, yes, please. Yeah. The, the Susquehannocks uh, moved into this area uh, fairly early, replacing a, a group of people we don't know too well who moved north. And the Susquehannocks took over in the uh, 16th century. They became a very powerful presence along the Susquehanna River, particularly headquartered in Washington Borough and vicinity in Lancaster County. They were very powerful, even though not very numerous at the time of white settlement, maybe when the first French traders came through here, there may have been 3,000, 4,000 Susquehannocks. But they were... Um, outsized in importance because they traded with those first settlers and those first traders, fur traders, and were very important to people who, who explored this area. John Smith described the Susquehannocks as being giants. And we think today that actually they were taller than Europeans. In any case, they had these large villages along the Susquehanna River and out along its branches, the Conestoga and elsewhere, and a little farther north from here. The Iroquois were their enemy. In the Susquehannock, the Iroquois came down from the north, of New York and northern Pennsylvania, and they were constantly warring with the Susquehannock for uh, various reasons, hunting regions being prime among them. And eventually the Iroquois defeated the Susquehannocks after the Susquehannocks had moved across the Susquehannock to York County. The Susquehannocks then moved down into Maryland and into Virginia, where they were really set upon by Native Americans living in that area, but more particularly by white settlers who didn't want them. They killed all their chiefs and uh, decimated the tribe. What was left of the Susquehannocks moved back to Lancaster County about 1680, and they were called then they were known as the Conestogas. And they were the people were the people who were killed in 1763. I, I, I might mention here this would be of interest to some people. Susquehannock and Conestoga are not what they called themselves. We don't know what they called themselves. Those are Lenape names. It's a different language. So their enemies uh, were certainly not their friends. 
named them, and those are the names that have come down to us. So the Conestoga is in 1680, about uh, 80 or 90 people moved back to Lancaster County, settled again in the Washington Borough uh, area, Columbia area, and uh, slowly declined until they were wiped out in 1763. So one of the events that would play a pivotal role in the eventual massacre was something called Pontiac's Rebellion. Would you mind summarizing Pontiac's Rebellion and why it was so important? Sure. Let me go back a little farther than that. The French and Indian War began in the mid-1750s, reached Pennsylvania, 1757-58, and there were attacks on central Pennsylvania by Indians allied with the French against the English who had settled here. Paxton, which is now today's Harrisburg, the Paxton area, was attacked and many several people were killed by the, the, the Indians during that time. And the French and Indian War was a, a, a horrific for the people living in this area. Lancaster was always, people were always frightened that the Indians would come down this far and um, do some harm. So when the French and Indian War ended with the English winning, there were numerous people who were very pleased. Not too many French lived here. So it was a very English and German area. And they, they barely had time to breathe a sigh of relief when Chief Pontiac and others allied with him in uh, present-day Michigan uh, began a, a large pushback against the English, now knowing that the English had no enemy and could, could sweep as far as they wanted to, into Indian country. The Pontiac's uh, allies swept across Ohio into Pennsylvania, taking fort after fort and burning settlers' homes, killing people by the hundreds, making people flee. From the Indian point of view, it was the most successful or one of the two most successful pushbacks against European settlement. It got to the central part of Pennsylvania and people got all upset again. It was like the French and Indian War all over again. And uh, various militias were raised to protect the northern parts of counties north of Philadelphia. At that time, Lancaster County was uh, included not only Lancaster, but Dauphin and Lebanon counties. Dauphin is where Harrisburg is, so that's where Paxton was. And the Paxton militia, later called the Paxton Boys, there's about 100 men under the direction of Reverend John Elder, who was a Presbyterian minister. He had uh, uh, ministerial duties in Paxton and Derry. Derry is where Hershey is. And Presbyterian ministers were, well, let's just say he was not the only Presbyterian minister who was in charge of a militia. The Scots-Irish were put on the frontier by the English and the Germans to a degree, because they knew they were really good fighters. 
and they were used as a buffer against the Indians. Also, the the, be, the worst land was on the fringes of Lancaster County and Dolphin County, and so they pushed the Scots Irish out there. So Elder raised these hundred men from the Paxton area, probably Derry, and maybe from Donegal Township in present-day Lancaster County. And they were charged by the governor to protect Lancaster from attack. But they, they um, went a little farther than that, went up the branches of the Susquehanna. There are two branches of the Susquehanna River north of Harrisburg. They went up those branches and met with defeat both times. And this frustrated them, and that along with the attack on Paxton during the French and Indian War made them angry. There are other reasons they were upset, but this led eventually to the slaughter of the last of the Congress That's a brief overview. And to make matters more interesting, there was also a huge Quaker influence in Pennsylvania as well. Yes, absolutely. There, there, were, there were several groups who were very well-defined. I'd say almost as well-defined as Republicans and Democrats today. <laughs> the Scots-Irish Presbyterians, almost all of them, were well-known as fighters. They were against the Indians because they were on the fringes of the, of the settlement, and they were the ones who were most likely to be attacked. So they were anti-Indian. And there were Quakers who were peaceful people, mostly lived in Philadelphia, some in Lancaster, some here and there. And they were uh, more insulated from Indian deprivations. The Iroquois didn't bother to come into Philadelphia. So they, they had a different approach to this entirely, and they were in charge of the government of Pennsylvania. And so they allocated resources for uh, the Philadelphia and Lancaster, uh, the settled areas, and not so much for the fringes. When the when the Scots Irish on the frontier would say, "We need more, we need more help out here. We need more guns. We need more ammunition. We need more horses and wagons. We need this. We need that," they'd be ignored. They were underrepresented in the government. The government was represented primarily by Philadelphia and its immediate suburbs. Even Lancaster County didn't have many representatives. So we had the Scots-Irish, the Quakers, who were almost entirely English, the Germans, who were both fancy Germans, <laughs> we call the Reformed Germans, and the, um, uh, also the Amish and Mennonites. The Mennonites had a distinctly pro-Indian bias, too. And the Conestoga Settlement, that settlement, which is where this attack will take place in 1763, that was surrounded almost entirely by Mennonite and Quaker farms. So there were pacifists around them, put there to, in some ways to protect them, in other ways because that was the best land. So there were, there were these very well-defined groups of European settlers who didn't agree on many things. So the identities of the Paxton Rangers remains a mystery still today, but the names of the leaders, you have a 
pretty good idea of, of who they were, right? Well, I, 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 that may oversimplify it a bit. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a murky situation because the, the story of the massacre, like a lot of American history, has gone through transition because there have been different people telling the story. The story originally was that it was a group of Paxton Rangers, later called Paxton Boys, who killed all these Indians, and nobody knew who their leaders were. But they had a pretty good idea of who helped those leaders, and that, I think, is who you're referring to. Then the story changed when uh, several people came in and and just told outright, outright lies and warped the story to look better for the Scots-Irish, and it became, the Indians had it coming, and the Scots-Irish were the good guys. And then now, in the last 20 or so years, we've gotten back to the original original idea, which came closer to those original accounts, which is that the, the Indians living in Conestoga were peaceful and should not have been slaughtered outright. But the story that, the, that evolved over the years, that there were members of the Paxton Rangers who were known by name, came from fabrications by the people who were siding with the Scots-Irish. I could never pin down anyone, and I'm not the first person who's tried. A Penn State professor tried years before me, and he, he couldn't find any single individual that he could say definitely was in on the massacre of the Indians. Now, as to the leaders who you mentioned, I, I think you're probably referring to the what I call abettors in the book, the, the people who enabled, let's call them enablers, those people who enabled the Paxton Rangers to so easily come into Lancaster County and kill 20 Indians and get away with it. We should probably clarify so people understand there were two attacks against the Conestoga within days of each other. The first one was made on December 14, 1763, and that took place in what was known as Conestoga Town, right? That's right, Conestoga Town, which was a village about four miles from where I'm sitting right now, about three miles from the Susquehanna River. It was. Despite what I said before about there being so few Conestogas, it was a very important village. All the important treaties uh, with the Iroquois and the Napis and the Conestogas were held at Conestoga Indian Town in the early 18th century. And then later they were held in Lancaster. Uh, so despite this, the small number of people, it was an important village. And that's where the first six of the, uh, the Indians were, were killed. And that was on December 14th. Do you want me to go on and tell the story? I would love it, yeah. All right. Well, um, the Paxton Rangers, which was John Elder's group, they were these militia groups were called Rangers. They came down the Susquehanna River from the Paxton area, from Harrisburg, down to what's now Columbia. It was then known as Wright's Ferry, a ferry on the Susquehanna River. And they stayed overnight. They came down the 13th. They stayed overnight. And early morning on the December 14th, 
they rode through the snow. It was very cold that winter. It was snow. It was snowing all the time, or uh, ice was on the ground. It was a mess. And they rode to the Indian town by accounts at dawn. And they fired into the Indian cabins. These Indians were living much as poor white settlers would have lived at the time. They wore settler clothes for the most part. They used flintlocks if they could get them. And they, they had rustic cabins. Anyway, the rangers fired into the cabins, and then they went in with their tomahawks and killed anybody who was still alive. They scalped all of them and left. One of there were actually seven Indians there at the time. One of the little boys named Crisley or Christy, we don't know which Christy Chrisley got away somehow, went running through the snow and he warned the other Indians who had been kept out overnight because of the snow, they couldn't get back to the village, uh, which was lucky for them for only thirteen days. Anyway, those uh, 14 Indians were taken to the workhouse of the county, which was in downtown Lancaster on Prince Street, on the site, the present site of the Fulton Theater, the Fulton Opera House, which now takes up a whole block. At that time, there was a prison there, and they had just built earlier that year a workhouse behind it, a debtor's workhouse. And the Indians had been under the protection of the governor of Pennsylvania when they were living in Indian town because John Penn, the governor, William Penn's grandson, thought it was a good idea to keep a few peaceful Indians around to show hostile Indians that it would be possible to live within an environment of English and Germans without being killed. And uh, that didn't work out. So they took the, the magistrates of Lancaster County under the direction of Edward Shippen, who was the chief magistrate or chief judge, took those remaining 13 Indians plus Chrisley into the workhouse for their protection. So, and I'd like to emphasize this, if, if nobody remembers anything else from this podcast, that the Indians who were killed in the workhouse were under the protection of two levels of government, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and the county of Lancaster. They were taken into the workhouse and they were kept there under guard. Some nights magistrates would walk up and down in front of the workhouse to make sure that they were safe. There was a jailer there. Um, Sometimes the sheriff of the county would be around. They seemed to be well protected. And then on the 27th of December, Seemingly out of nowhere, the Paxton Rangers attacked again. They came down from the north again. This time rode right down through town, down Queen Street to the what we now call Penn Square, tethered their horses there, walked down King Street Hill to Prince Street, just a block, up half a, half a block up Prince Street to the workhouse where they met the, uh, the sheriff and uh, a tavern owner who stepped aside. They went in and they once again shot and and tomahawked and scalped the last of the Conestoga Indians. 
the massacre really was two separate massacres only because the Paxton Rangers didn't find all the Indians at Conestoga Indian Town when they first attacked. You, you write that they acted pretty uh, obnoxiously while in town, whooping and hollering. and They did. Yeah. They, they weren't so bad when they came into town. They didn't make any pretense of what they were going to do. Uh, about 50, 50 of these guys attacked the Indian village in Manor Township, where I am now, the one we were talking about. And about 100, according to accounts, uh, attacked the, uh, the workhouse in Lancaster, Lancaster Town. And um, they rode straight down Queen Street, and they were armed to the teeth, you know, with guns and tomahawks. And <laughs> everybody knew why they were there. It was a work day. It was two days after Christmas. Christmas was on a Sunday that year. So it was the Tuesday after Christmas. Everybody, almost everybody, was working. And they rode past them, and then they walked past them. But then the most interesting thing is that they had the um, audacity to leave their horses in one place, go do the killing, and walk back to get their horses. They knew nobody was going to touch them. And then they got on their horses, and they rode around the courthouse, which was in the middle of the square at that time. It isn't anymore. They rode around this, the courthouse several times, hooping and hollering, according to a, a Quaker named Henderson who was living in town and wrote a long, well, medium-length letter about this. Hooping and hollering and rode back up Queen Street, went to, back to Paxton. And that, so far as they were concerned, was the end of it. Uh, we don't know what happened to any of them. So the Indians that were killed in the workhouse, they were elderly people, children. Many had converted to Christianity. Uh, like you said, they wore settlers' clothes. They were being looked after by the locals, and they didn't pose a, a danger to anyone. No, the record shows no proof that they posed any danger to anyone. One of the main reasons that the Paxton Rangers claimed later that, or I should say the apologists for the Paxton Rangers claimed later that they were, they killed the Indians was that they were acting as spies for hostile Indians, Iroquois living farther north. But there's no absolute proof in the record that that, that ever occurred. They were mostly older women, older men, and young young children. There may have been a couple of teenagers, but there were mostly old men and women and young children. Two in particular, the Sock brothers, Sock or Sack, depending on how you read the English writing, were very well known. And the one, uh, Will Sock, who was killed at the workhouse, was disliked by some people because he was... Um, he was not a servile Indian. He, he didn't walk across the other side of the street when a bigwig walked by him. He didn't bow to anybody. He, he was an important, an important person, not only as a Native American, but uh, for both sides. He, he um, participated in treaty sessions. He helped produce the only 
dictionary we have of the Susquehannock language, it's about 150 words. They're the only words we know that the Susquehannocks ever used. So when people talked about, at that time, about the Conestoga Indians, they were really referring to the Sauk brothers. They didn't know much about the others. But they were mostly, you'd have to say, harmless people. They were elderly or very young. And there was some suspicion that the Sauk brothers were involved in some espionage, right? Right. There's that suspicion, but most of that, all of that suspicion comes about in a very odd way. Le- legitimate suspicion. The fabricated suspicion is, uh, is printed in several places, but the supposedly real suspicion comes about after the Indians were killed. John Penn, William Penn's grandson, who was acting as governor of the Commonwealth, ordered the magistrates, the judges of Lancaster County, Edward Shippen in command, to find and try and punish the killers of these Indians. Instead of doing that, there's, there's no indication that they did ever try to do any of that stuff. What they did do was they took affidavits from uh, a total of nine people who lived in Lancaster who had reason to despise Indians. And they made various allegations about the Conestogas, particularly the Sauk brothers, none of which could possibly be corroborated that they had done this, they had done that. Some of them are are just silly that they just didn't look right to the people who were looking at them. But the, the, the most curious thing is that these affidavits were taken at all. It'd be sort of like charging somebody with a crime and then instead of taking testimony against the person who is supposedly the criminal, you, you, the, uh, you take testimony uh, against the, the person who has been criminalized. It makes no sense whatsoever that these affidavits exist and they are the primary source of any so-called evidence that the, the Indians were not peaceful. And the people who, who gave those affidavits, they all had some pretty serious biases against the Conestogas, right? Well, they had biases against, some had biases against the Conestogas and some had biases against Indians in general. For example, there was one woman who was captured by the Indians, not Conestogas, taken away for some time and brought back. She obviously didn't like Indians, and for good reason. There was a, a Colonel Hambright who had fought in the French and Indian War. He had fought against Indians. He didn't like Indians. Uh, so they, they were all picked out for the very, for one reason only. The affidavits are anti-Indian. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So the Quakers in the community and across the Commonwealth were completely outraged by what had happened. Uh, Being a peaceful, passive religion, uh, violence was abhorrent to them. It still is. And they couldn't believe that something like this could happen to a group of people that were supposed to be under their protection. No, there were two very definite, two very different opinions. The one that you've just stated and the other, which was so, well, there were three different opinions. One that you just stated, the, the opposite, which is that these guys had it coming that they were bad Indians and they should have been killed. And the third and prevalent opinion was, who cares? Most people in Lancaster County, as practically anywhere in the United States at that time, well, this is before the United States, anywhere in the colonies at that time, didn't much care about Indians. They were in the way. So there were those three very distinct opinions. The opinions became very clear after the killings. Here, the Paxton rangers morphed into the Paxton boys, became a group of about 500 men, and they marched on Philadelphia where they were going to kill, try to kill a group of Moravian Indians. 
so-called Moravian Indians who were being protected by the Moravians up near Bethlehem. They were brought to Philadelphia for their safety. And the, those Paxton boys went down there with the intention of killing them. They were turned back for political reasons, which we can get into, but I, I want to say something else first. They were turned back, and uh, that exchange in Philadelphia spawned a group of dozens of pamphlets, which were written by various people. The most famous one was called A Narrative of the Massacres. It was written by Benjamin Franklin, although he didn't sign his name to it. And he took his his opinion straight from the Quakers, especially Susanna Wright, who lived in Wright's Ferry, now Columbia, a famous Quaker in this area. And uh, he believed that the, the Indians were were totally innocent and the Paxton Rangers were totally wrong. Uh, probably the most famous pamphlet after that one was written by Thomas Barton, who was the pastor of St. James Episcopal Church in Lancaster. And we know that because his grandson said he did it. We also know it because James Myers, who's a professor at Gettysburg College, wrote a biography of Thomas Barton and linguistically says that it was definitely his writing. And he attacked the Indians, saying that Scots-Irish were right, the Indians were bad, and they, they should have been killed. Thomas Barton is a very complex man. Sometimes he liked Indians, sometimes he didn't. But that, I guess, I guess to the, the heart of, to me, to the heart of the investigation of this whole story. If we don't know for sure the names of the people who killed the Indians, we have an idea of some of them. We don't know for sure. We do know who were the enablers. One of them was Edward Shippen, the chief magistrate, who knew they were going to be killed and let it happen who was supposedly their protector and let it happen. Thomas Barton, who scheduled a church service, a delayed Christmas service, at almost precisely the time the Indians were being killed three and a half blocks away at the workhouse. Thomas Elder, who was the pastor in charge of the Rangers, who knew they were going, his, his, some of his parishioners were going to go down and kill the Indians. They told him the night before. He didn't stop them. He didn't warn anybody they were coming. And probably John Harris Jr., who was uh, sort of John Elder's sidekick up in the Paxton area. I call those the enablers of all this uh, turmoil. And there were British regulars stationed in town that day, right? There were. There were uh, 200 British regular troops, uh, because this was a British town at that time. 200 British troops living in a town, at a fairly sizable town. Then Lancaster had 2,000 people and 200 British regulars. Edward Shippen later said he didn't know that they were in town. They were being, they lived with various people in the town. And, and the idea that the, the judge who <laughs> knew everybody in town didn't know that 200, people, 200 British regulars were in town walking around in their uniforms when this happened. It, it, it's impossible to believe. But they, they were never asked by the judges to guard the Indians. So Benjamin Franklin, he played a role in this. 
at one point negotiating with the Paxton Rangers. Yeah, he did. He and John Penn were both, and, and several other people, were negotiators. They met the Paxton boys at, in Germantown, North Philadelphia, before they got downtown where uh, John Penn had uh, raised an impromptu militia of uh, a few hundred people with guns and a couple cannons to try to ward off this imminent attack. They went up there and they negotiated for several days. And at the end of those negotiations, the Paxton boys left. They went home. They went back to Lancaster County and some were from Cumberland County as well. They went back there and we don't know what was said during that session, but we do know that the Scots-Irish won at the election, the next election, and began making inroads into the Quaker rule in Philadelphia. Whether the two are connected, I can't say for sure, but it seems possible that a deal was made during those negotiations to keep the Paxson boys, who were very upset, <laughs> from moving into Philadelphia and killing even more Indians. And Benjamin Franklin was at the heart of those negotiations. The little boy that had escaped from Conestoga Town, he was murdered in the Lancaster workhouse, correct? He was. He was one of the children. He and, and I think there were eight or nine children among those last uh, 14. Seven or eight, I guess. Uh, half, let's say half of them were children. And including three girls who were described only as little. The sheriff gave brief descriptions of each one, including their English given names, if they had them, and their Indian names. Uh, so these little girls, and Grizzly and a couple other children. There's only one account of what that workhouse and the yard behind it looked like after the slaughter. It was given 50 years later by a Lancaster guy to a, a Moravian author. And it, it, it's pretty grisly. Uh, they didn't just kill the Indians. They, they really massacred them. They did to Indians what I think uh, a lot of people may still think of as Indians doing to white people back then. It, it was a it was a true massacre, and there were massacres on both sides for us uh, throughout the period. But this was one of the worst. In um, A Century of Dishonor, a book that was written in the 1880s, Helen Hunt Jackson talked about three massacres that she highlighted in that book. It was a very famous book uh, at the time. Well, not at the time, but it became a famous book in the early 20th century. Anyway, she mentioned three massacres, and the Conestoga Massacre was the first of those three. You write in your book that the first real American cartoons, uh, political cartoons specifically, came out of this tragedy. Right. You're a close reader. Um, yes, I mentioned the pamphlets. I didn't get to the cartoons. There were various cartoons that were published, sometimes with the pamphlets, sometimes alone. And they were not only for the benefit of people who couldn't read, but there's a lot of 
a lot of writing in the cartoon, so you, you had to be able to read to really get the whole gist of it. And some of them were very anti-Quaker, some anti-Indian, some anti-Scots-Irish, um, some, some very anti-Presbyterian. Interesting group of, of cartoons. And when I wrote my book, I had a whole chapter in there about the, the pamphlets and the cartoons. Since then, a fellow at who is now with the Library Company of Philadelphia, Will Fenton, has put together a website called Digital Paxton. And he expanded on the pamphlets and the cartoons. He found more by going through all kinds of libraries and resources. He found more, and he made this great website, and a number of us contributed essays, and some of your listeners may want to go to Digital Paxton. It's an additional resource that's uh, very valuable. Oh, that's great. So for anyone that does an internet search on the Conestoga Massacre, likely what they'll see pop up as an image is a lithograph of the massacre made in the 1840s, I believe. Would you explain that lithograph for my listeners? Right. It, it's almost entirely inaccurate. I, I lobbied not to put this on the cover, but authors don't have much say with what goes on the covers of books. Well, at least I didn't have much say. On the other hand, it's the obvious choice. It's, it's the image that that everybody associates with this massacre, and it, it's wrong. Um, this was done in the 1840s, and the um, Paxton Rangers are depicted wearing Victorian clothing, early Victorian clothing, including top hats. They're dressed in suits, not, not equipment that the Paxton Rangers would have worn in the 1760s. And they're uh, using tomahawks and knives to kill the Indians who are half naked. There's no snow around, but the Indians certainly would have been dressed more with warmer clothes. Uh, there would have been snow on the ground. And this building behind them might have been the prison. It looks a little like the prison may have looked at that time, but it's not the workhouse. And in fact, the Indians were not killed in the workhouse. They fled out into the workhouse yard, which was behind the workhouse on Water Street, not on Prince Street. This image, this lithograph, is made as if it's on Prince Street. So almost everything about it is wrong. The, the right thing about it is it shows unarmed uh, women, including one with a baby at her breast, which may be overdoing it, being slaughtered. That's correct. So speaking of the 1840s, I, I know you mentioned this briefly earlier, but there were some people in the mid-19th century who tried to revise this history. And they were successful, at least for a while, in changing the narrative. They, they were extremely successful. The first of them was a fellow named Redmond Cunningham, who uh, was a lawyer in Lancaster and a a member of the American Philosophical Society, a noted amateur historian, someone who usually got his facts on Indians correct. I've read his material in Susquehannock, it's pretty straightforward. 
But he wrote a, a, a series of historical sketches called Historical Sketches Containing Facts Not Generally Known for the uh, Lancaster newspaper, at that time, the Lancaster Intelligencer and Journal, in 1843. It was in the spring and summer of 1843. And what he said about the Tuscohannocks was okay. But when he got to the Conestogas and the massacre, he, he started making up things. He just made up the entire narrative to favor the Paxton Rangers. He fabricated letters by a guy named Lazarus Stewart, who probably was involved in the killings because he was a mean guy was involved in other depredations later. But he created a letter by Lazarus Stewart and letters by other people. I'm not the first one who found these letters. A guy named George Franz, who's the fellow who tried to get the names of the Paxton Rangers, like I mentioned earlier, and couldn't pin down one name for sure. He tried to tried to find out the names of the Paxton boys, but he, he also... In doing so, ran across these Cunningham notes in the newspaper and found the fabricated letters. Well, I went through those newspaper accounts much more carefully because they were closer to what I was focusing on, the Indians rather than the packs and boys. And, and I found more letters that were made up because they just don't jive with the real record that we have. There, there's some altered letters. There's some that are made up out of whole cloth. I think, well, maybe this professor and I got it wrong and we're just not reading things right, except that a fellow named William Hunter, before we came along, who worked for the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission, found another set of papers that Cunningham had fabricated, and he wrote a scathing piece about this. So Cunningham was a known fabricator, and he comes along and the newspaper printed whatever it uh, he gave him. Th this was distorted again, this whole story. It was distorted again by William Henry Eggle, was a, do a doctor in Harrisburg at the end of the 19th century, another amateur historian who's lionized up there even today, I think. But he just followed Cunningham and made up some of his own stuff. He made up some new affidavits that were against Indians. Then the guy who really put the exclamation point on it was Francis Parkman, who wrote a, a book very well known at the time called The Conspiracy of Pontiac, about Pontiac's rebellion, in which he cast the Scots-Irish as doing the right thing to kill these Indians. So the, and, and then historians for years, for decades after that, well into the 20th century, for over 100 years, 150 years, most historians picked up on these fabricated and otherwise distorted uh, documents and used them. And I understand how that happens. Historians can't go back to the re original record all the time. They have to rely on something. And when, when something is wrong and somebody picks it up, if that somebody is well-known, well-respected in the historical community, then the next historian will come along and pick it up again. And so this continued until relatively recently. Um, so s several people now have um, have tried to set the record a little straighter than it had been for, as I say, almost 150 years. I found it really compelling um, while reading your book 
the, the accounts written after the massacre happened by people with a close connection to the events. One woman had remembered the stories told by her family uh, who had been there, and in another account written later in life by a man who had been a boy, six years old, I believe, he had gone into the workhouse right after the slaughter had happened, and he had seen the bodies firsthand. Yeah, the, the boy, William Henry Jr., went into the workhouse yard and saw the dead bodies afterwards, including one of the male Conestogas who's had, had his head blown off by a, one of the Paxton Rangers. That stuck in his mind, obviously. His account wasn't printed until 50 years afterwards, but you almost have to believe that something like that would be seared in somebody's memory and you wouldn't make it up. The, the other account, there just are no contemporary accounts because there was nobody left in the village. They wiped them all out. There was nobody at the uh, scene in the workhouse, just this young fellow who went in and recorded what he saw 50 years later. But Rhoda Barber, who lived in the Columbia area, Wrights Ferry, was at her father's house, Robert Barber's house, when the Paxton Rangers came to his house after the first massacre. And she described those men. But the compelling part, and she didn't write what she wrote until she was in her declining years, but the most compelling part of that story, of her tale, is she was just a little girl when she saw Crisley's toy gun uh, on the set tied to the saddle of one of the Paxton Rangers. She is, these kids in, in Wrights Ferry now, Columbia, would go down to the village, which wasn't far away, and, and they would visit with the Indians. They would play with the, those kids would play back and forth. And she knew Crisley's little toy gun. Little, I don't know what it was, probably a, 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 wooden, a wooden gun, a toy. And she remembered that. And I believe that I believe her account to be true because that's that's something that a somebody would remember forever. She had a, a very uneasy feeling that her friend something bad had happened to her friend because why would this guy have his toy gun? Can you imagine poor Crisley, the lone survivor of the first attack? He had seen so many horrific things there barely escaped the first time. And then just two weeks later, he was promised safety. He thought he was safe. And then it happened again, except this time he was one of the victims. That's, that's right. He, yeah, I often think about Crisley walking through the snow. I, the thing I think wonder about is whether he had time to get his shoes. Uh, it, it, it was, the snow was, was deep, was cold, and he, he probably didn't have to go too far to a, a neighboring Mennonite home, uh, well, a, a few hundred yards at least, maybe a, half a mile. Uh, but, but he had to go away knowing that everybody was being killed behind him, in the cold, in the dark, and then to think he was safe, being protected 
by not only the older people in his group, the Conestogas, who he's with, but by the county of Lancaster and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, <laughs> we didn't we didn't treat Crisley well. We didn't treat any of them well. Yeah. So with this large outcry and promises made by authorities to bring these men to justice, can you share with my listeners what happened or specifically what didn't happen <laughs> to the men who committed these murders. Yeah, that's the, that's the most difficult thing. To, uh, next to the Crisley and the others being killed so terribly, the, the worst thing about this is that nothing happened. There's nothing in the criminal record that th this, this was even registered as a, a case in, in the records. There are several domestic cases at the time that I found in the, in the books, but there's nothing about this at all. John Penn offered a reward for information. Nobody came forward. He instructed the magistrates to find and try and punish the perpetrators and nothing happened. And that, that, that reflects on John Penn too, because he just let it drop. The, uh, Assembly didn't, or what's now the legislature did not. Uh, they talked about it for several years and they kept threatening the pens with, um, they'd say, you know, we need to do something about what happened in Lancaster. It wasn't right. People should pay for it. But then nothing ever happened to anyone. It just, <laughs> it'd be as if somebody, um, killed 20 people today, and then everybody just forgot about it and then distorted the history of it, made it even worse. So tell us where we can find out more about you, about this book, and about the other books that you've written. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, well, the, the book is, um, is available from the publisher, the History Press, also from Amazon. It's, I know, for sale in all the bookstores in Lancaster and at the historical societies. And the book that I'm working on, I'm trying to desperately to meet a contract deadline, is, is, has, has nothing to do with central Pennsylvania. It's a book about reconciliation after the Civil War and about veteran reconciliation, how it happened among, between Confederate and Union veterans, white veterans, but the reconciliation did not extend extend to black veterans, and we so we still have a problem today of reconciling all that mess uh, during the Civil War, and uh, we're, we're still not right about racism and slavery. But I, a number of people have written about that. What I found were two fathers, one who fought for the Confederacy, one who fought for the Union. They had sons. They were, they were both officers during the Civil War. They had sons who were lieutenants in the Spanish-American War. Both of those lieutenants were killed at the Battle of El Caney, which was fought on the same day as the uh, 
Battle of San Juan Hill, the Teddy Roosevelt thing. And those lieutenants were killed leading their troops at El Caney almost at exactly the same time within a couple hundred yards of each other. Their fathers, they were buried in Cuba and later reburied at Knoxville National Cemetery. And their fathers met there for the first time, the Confederate father and the Union father, well over 30 years after the Civil War. They met there and wept together. And it was a big story for a day or two in Knoxville, particularly for longer than that. But it was also carried by wire services all over the country. And people were saying this was an example of reconciliation between uh, enemies during the Civil War. And then it got lost in history. And so I dug up the past and talked to the descendants of these two families. And I'm putting together a book about that. Well, that sounds great. Well, well, this has been so informative. Thank you again. Well, thank you for asking me. I've enjoyed it. I really appreciate your reading the book, and I appreciate your questions. That was, that was one of the most intelligent. <laughs> You're one of the most intelligent interviewers I've run across, so I appreciate it. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. Again, I have been speaking to Jack Brubaker. His book is called Massacre of the Conestogas, on the trail of the Paxton boys in Lancaster County. I hope I pronounced that correctly. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Doesn't it feel like the entire world is a dark and cobwebbed corner right now? Oh, boy. I hope you and yours are staying safe. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.